have I got a story for you. Actually, it's a fucking action plan. Professor Cliff, episode 38, was kind enough to give his time and lay out several specific things listeners can advocate for and hold their elected officials accountable to do. You better grab a fucking pen and paper. You're going to want to take notes. But first, a word from today's sponsor, AndrePsyche.com. AndrePsyche.com is the small town boutique shop on the corner of the World Wide Web where you get the type of merch that the big box stores, they just don't have. Go to Amazon if you like, and just like everyone else, keep scrolling through all those fucking deals, product after product, and you're never going to find, I'm telling you, you're not going to get anything unique. Nothing's original there, one of a kind. But every fucking thing on AndrePsyche.com is unique and original because it's all created by Andre. I'm talking about arts, prints, music, podcasts, poetry, literature, clothing, accessories. Should I keep going? No. I want to tease you a little bit. Go to AndrePsyche.com and see the rest, bitch. He recently went to a protest in Seattle for George Floyd, recorded some video footage, went home, wrote, produced, collaborated, recorded, edited, and posted a song the same day. Go to YouTube and search Andre Psyche Presents Hope. That's his voice. Those are his fingers strumming that guitar. That right there is the kind of feeling and emotion, originality that you are getting with every single product from his website. AndrePsyche.com needs to be the next site you visit. It's going to be worth the trip. We are also brought to you by the Getting to Know You pod. And I'm going to be honest, I feel like a complete ass for promoting the pod here. Um, And I felt like an ass for recording this with Professor Cliff. But I'm hoping, we are hoping to build a platform of understanding and perspective. And fucking hey, do we need some perspective and understanding at this time. So please support this podcast with follows, friends, reviews, comments, subscriptions on social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Spotify, Apple Pods, Stitcher, iHeart, wherever the fuck you're pushing play and learning about us. But more importantly, especially with this episode in particular, if you want change in the system you are living at a local level that you've gone out and protested for, Forward and share this episode to people you know. There are specific, specific action plans that will help the system to be more fair. For the system to just fucking get it. That death should not be an option. That every child should be able to get home to their parent no matter their color, race, or origin. And now, getting to know how to change the system. Hello. Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to like you. Getting 
I'm good enough. Getting to know you, putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely and doggone it. my cup of tea. On today's show, we are getting to know a lot more from Cliff, who's Chadsworth keeps coming up, and man, I just I, I feel like I'm gonna call you Chadsworth so much, dude. Just Cliff, um, just Cliff. Brother. I know it's just Cliff. Cliff, I um, I contacted you because I had some questions and I wanted to get a one on one, and then I, the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, maybe some people would actually benefit from a almost like a little deep dive into your mind of with Black Lives Matters, with the protests, um, actual change that can occur. So I want to thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to, to come on the pod and um, listen to me stumble through and ask questions. And um, as always, your patience is very much appreciated in how you explain and break down things, man. Not a problem. So we were chatting beforehand, and the beautiful point you were making is uh, promoting racial equality within your own home. And Absolutely. I, I, I love how you started there, and I think you kind of – you had kind of started and I was like, wait, wait, let me actually start recording. Um, <laughs> so tell me about racial equality and how to promote that within your home. All right. So the number one thing that we can do as an individual to ensure the promotion of all folks as equal is to promote racial equality. Um, and it all starts in your home. It all starts with how you teach your children, how you interact with the people you, who live in your home and how you interact with your loved ones and then on to your friends. I say start with the little people in your home because they're impressionable. They look at right. everything that we do. They are sponges, things that we we don't say, but we do in our actions. They watch and they internalize those things and those become their norms. If you make it so that everyone is viewed equally and that no one is looked down upon and no one is treated differently because of the color of their skin, right. what they believe religiously or what they believe in sexually, then you are promoting and fostering a culture of equality. That's where it all starts. And um, my mind immediately goes to conversations based around character, not character. I shouldn't say characteristics, but I felt like that flowed well. But when, like, if you're watching a TV show, talking about what that person is doing based on what they're doing, not what they look like or their preferences. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm with young children. I mean, unless you live in a place that, you know, is a is a homogeneous population, um, they are likely going to school with people who look different than them. All sorts, so, right? you know, you start to have those conversations. And the beautiful thing about children is something that someone had told me before. And then I witnessed it firsthand. If you are fortunate enough to um, to have a child and to have a child where you can watch them develop, to go from a infant to a toddler, from a toddler into a, a to a young person and then from a young person into an adolescent, into an adult, when they are toddlers and, and if they're in a daycare situation or they're in a socialization situation where they're with other children. Children do not see color. It's scientifically proven. There, there, there's so many studies about that. Yeah. Racism is a learned behavior. Right. Most of the isms are learned <laughs> behaviors, but particularly racism. And when, when my daughter um, was a infant, one of the things that I noticed and I, I would watch before I picked her up every day, I would look through the window and just watch. And 
you started to see going from an infant to a toddler, right? The thing that separated the group socially was mobility. Ah. Which of the children, which of the children could crawl while other ones could not. And then when it went from crawling, it went to who was walking while others were still crawling. A meritocracy. <laughs> right. It wasn't about the color of your skin. Yeah. It wasn't about your height. It wasn't about your eye color. It was strictly about who can do this and who can't. Right. Therefore, yeah. when these people morph and they grow and they start to have other social interactions as they mature and they learn new things environmentally, they pick up the isms, particularly racism. So if you are not catching that at an early point or if you are promoting racism from an early point, then you are programming your children to be the same way. Can I and. Again, you have every right the next time, which would be the first time you see me to um, smack me if I say anything stupid and please feel free to correct me. But when you're talking about promoting racism within the home, are you talking about, is it making off-colored remarks? Is it kind of stereotyping? What, what are, I guess, what may be some common ways that maybe people don't even realize you're actually promoting racism within your home? Well, I mean, it's going to be all of the above. It, it can be, you know, the fact that, you know, we say off-color jokes instead of saying bigoted jokes, right? Mm. Off-color makes it seem so, you know, uh, you know, so benign. You know, oh, you know, it's just an off-color joke. That's a bigoted joke. You're making jokes about either homosexuals or you're making jokes about um, people's race. That's not benign, Right. So if you treat it in a way, including the nomenclature and the verbiage that we use to describe it, if you treat it in a way where that's benign, that child grows up thinking that's a benign behavior. Right. You know, next thing, lots of folks in the confines and the comfort of their own homes, they say things and they interact in a way that is not socially allowable and acceptable um, outside of their home. Well, who's with you in your home? Yeah. The right? impressionable ones, the ones learning. Right. Who doesn't see when you're outside of your home and as uh, people of color say, we wear the mask. Who doesn't get to see you when you're wearing the mask outside of the home? So what they are seeing is the comfortable you, the you who is at home or the you that is what some people would say, the authentic you. And if right. the authentic you is a bigot then that's what they internalize as the norms for themselves. And it, it just, it, it's funny, man. And I love the example of kids because it's so true. And it actually, um, it, it's supposed to be the purity of sports. It's the fastest man is the fastest man. It's a meritocracy, right? Like, so why do I like you as a kid? Well, because you're nice to me, because you're my friend, because we play well, because we enjoy, because we do things together. And I guess if you can focus those conversations in your home, if you're watching TV or you're learning about who your kids are interacting with, it's not a, it, it shouldn't be a racial or a, just a stereotype thing. It should just be about, well, what does that person do? How do they treat you? How do you enjoy hanging around with them? Kind of a thing. Right. Right. And, and I tell that people to be, so simple. Be, be careful because I've heard, I've heard a lie repeated constantly that like sports is the universal equalizer, right? Because I think ideally, um, 
I, I don't think it is. I think ideally right. it is because again, strongest, you're the strongest, fastest, you're the fastest, but we know there's preferential treatments there and attention go. given within that system itself. There you go. And, no, and then, you. you know, and then also you get, you get some folks who get into coaching, you know, so that they can give, you know, their, their children who are less athletically, <laughs> athletically inclined an opportunity to actually play or participate. Hey man, now, you, you, now, now you're talking about me. I don't appreciate that. No, no, I'm just then, kidding. <laughs> you know, then you also have boosters, right? You've oh, got yeah. you've got people who get involved in ways where they can make financial contributions because that creates an environment conducive to maybe uh, it's a different form of pay to play, but a little extra influence yeah. as to you know why their son or grandson or daughter um, is not playing and and shouldn't they get some consideration because of you know what we do. You know, all these things, um, I think, taint and pollute what at one point in time was viewed as a, uni- as a equalizing yeah. Uh, realm. Yeah, and then, results you know, based. Results t- based. Right. And I talked to my uncles who, um, I'm talking about my, my great uncles, they were the last of the segregation generation and many of them uh, desegregated. Um, schools or um, actually went into schools where they were supposed to integrate them, but, you know, they didn't desegregate them. I mean, they didn't integrate them. They desegregated them. And they talk about the fact that when they first showed up and they first started playing um, competitive sports, um, you know, they had a edge, you know, and they had a chip on their shoulder because they had always wanted to prove their worth. And when it began to look like they were displaying signs of athletic dominance, uh, the very next generation came the uh, parents of the kids becoming the coaches. Mm. And, you know, that, of course, said about, uh, you know, a couple generations of, um, how would we say this, uh, influence um, over sports. So that's why I'm always careful just to make sure that folks um, don't create a fallacy that sports right. is a universal um playing field. Yeah. And that's, and it's funny because when I speak about it, um, I, I, I do consider that and it's, it's something, and just as a real quick side note. So I coach middle school basketball without mm-hmm. any child being involved on the squad. I, I have no vested interest on who is on the roster other than, can you help us beat blank school? Right. My, my goal is, can you help us win a game? Right. I'm amazed when parents come at me and they're like, you hate my kid. You, you don't like my kid. He's not, I'm like, who, who am I playing over your kid that I like better? I like, I'm like, we, we, we track things. I, I, I look for like, who's quicker, who can shoot better, who can, who can defend, who can rebound, who can jump higher, right? Like who can finish at the rim. And it's that simple to me. And it's always kind of befuddled me that the parents of the athletes I coach, the ones who get upset are not more appreciative of like, I don't have favorites or like, I don't have any blood in the game. I don't have any skin in the game. It's just for me who's the best five right now, basketball wise, that can get a bucket or get a stop. Right. But at the same time, that that's not a normal thing in everyday sports across America. Right. And see, I, I think I'd be the, I'd be the worst high school um, coach possible. Cause when I got a coach like that, um, I'd bring the coach to my office and I'd tell him straight up, look here, uh, your son is last in drills. Um, <laughs> I shows, did, I did very, it. very, shows very, very poor, <laughs> 
um, team, you know, team. body language, coachability. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. He doesn't understand the plays. Dude's showing up late. My man doesn't even have his sneakers tied when we're starting stretches. <laughs> yeah. And I tell him truth of the matter is, um, I'm seeing more, um, you know, I'm seeing more ambition out of you than I do your kid. So oh, maybe wow. you, and your, maybe you and your kid spend some time and do a little role reversal. And that could help me help the team greatly. Do you mind if I use that line? I'm seeing more ambition out of you than your kid. Can I use that? Use it. Use it. Because, dude, that's so true. Sometimes the parents just want it so much more than the kids. And you're like, dude, I'm not trying to hold your kid back. Your, your, Your kid has every opportunity. It's just that they're not either taking advantage or right now at their current state, they're unable to take advantage of the opportunity. But it's right. not me. It's not a me thing. I'll, but not not to digress too much. But that's that is something that I often do. I guess overlook is the um, is that not everybody's involved in coaching, especially with youth sports where the coaches aren't even really getting paid. You almost have to have parents specifically volunteer because why else would a person volunteer to do all the time with youth coaching unless their child is involved? For the same reason they used to do it. Coaches, youth coaches didn't get paid back in the day either. Um, Youth coaches did it for the love of the game and they did it for Mm. the maturation and for the life skills that you impart in the children, which goes right back into the conversation that we were having about how it starts at home. You've got to have an agenda for your children and the agenda for your children. If it's not about um, treating all people the way you'd want to be treated, treating all people fairly. And most importantly, being ready and prepared to compete in a globally competitive job environment, then you're doing your children a disservice. I think that's that's a huge point right there, man. If you're if you're trying to pull strings for your kid or if you're trying to put them behind and not understand that it's a results it's a result based world globally that we're living in. It doesn't matter your race, man. It's what you can produce at many jobs um you're hurting your kid well unless you can create environment environments and um systems that include privilege in Ah. which far too frequently you have those systems in america let's let's you know yes it's true that in a global society that competition should reign supreme and this is part of the problem that america is running into now See, now that many of the companies are multinational corporations and you've got globally people of color outnumber Europeans globally. So now you have more people of color who sit at the table and head some of these multinational corporations. Now, Timmy, whose dad worked for Mr. Johnson for 30 years and Mr. Johnson gave Timmy a job straight out of high school. So Timmy's doing really well. Well, this company, Mr. Johnson's company was just bought out by NRG, um, based out of, um, Tibet. NRG could give a damn about, uh, Timmy's father and little Timmy. All they care is that this company produces X widgets and that the bottom line is they produce for the company at an efficient ass rate. Right. What's the profit? If not, the next thing they want to look at is what are the qualifications of the people who work here? Mm -hmm. Right. Because if they're not getting the job done, we want to figure out, is it because there is a 
true problem with the infrastructure or the organizational structure there? Or is it that the people there are not capable and don't have the skill set to get it done? Now you go and you find out that Timmy has no very limited education. Right. Well, NRG is figuring, well, in this position where Timmy is, we also have four other companies in that region. And in those companies, we have people that have a bachelor's degree that hold that position. Here on out going forward, we're placing people with a bachelor's degree here. Timmy, you're out. All privilege is gone there. And- this competitive environment now where you've had plenty of people who previously were not designed and did not set themselves up to compete globally because they were taking advantage of regional privilege, that then sets them back. And now there's grievances that they have about the world they're living in. That is one of the biggest currents behind uh, the racial injustice. And my mind immediately went to uh, good old boys. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's funny because at at a corporate level, it would seem much harder to be a good old boy versus a on a government level, because on a corporate level, on on a private industry level, I feel like it's way more meritocratic. Like you, you've got to produce. Where I feel like typically on a government level, it's easier a level. It's easier to hide. Do we, do we call it, um, ineptitude? Do we call it like disqualifications? Well, I mean, in some, in some ways on a government level, you can, you can have good old boy systems. Cause I know of state agencies where folks have said that historically, you know, that's been like good old boy system there. Yeah. Well, but that's where on, my mind went. On the same token, though, you have to understand, too, that typically government passes the policies which require fair hiring practices. They're held to a higher standard Uh, than most private corporations do in terms of their hiring practices because they have to be transparent. And when you have to be transparent, if you are engaging in unfair hiring practices, you will be busted. That's why you generally see more African-Americans head Lots of um, high-ranking government um, positions. Also, that's why when government positions became available to former and previous slaves back in the uh, mid to late 1870s, that's why you saw many blacks begin to, A, covet those jobs, but then over time, that's why you see lots of African-Americans who look for federal employment or state and government employment because those have generally been places which have been more of a um, equalizer uh, for competing for jobs. Yeah, so then there, there it is right there. That's uh, I almost feel like I need a check mark. That's one misconception that I have in my mind because I'm thinking in my head, private sector – that that's merit based, man. What are you producing? What's your quota? Oh, What's your yeah, efficiency? And, and Do you I'm know not what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm not yeah, saying yeah. it's not. But what I'm saying is if I'm in private sector it's and easier. I want to run the good old boy system, yeah. I can do that as long as as long yeah. as I'm not disqualifying people based on their race, um, sexual orientation or their religion. I can hire who the hell I want. It's my company. Right. No. Yeah, you that's that, that, yeah. So. Well, so to pivot since I'd brought up government positions when protesters, when people are coming out and saying the system itself needs to be reformed, like there needs to be some legislative action that changes things. 
that things word is so weird, right? Like what are the things? What am I holding this sign for? What do I actually want to hear from a politician to think, okay, that person is actually going to benefit a systematic change? All right. So system reform, there, there are two tentacles to system reform. Right. So there's no there's no waving a magic wand in systems reform themselves. It doesn't happen that way. System reform <laughs> requires first. A change in philosophy. And then second. Legislative action or policy to enforce the new philosophy. That is any type of system, whether it's criminal justice, whether it's law enforcement, any type of systems reform requires a a change in philosophy and b policy or legislation to give the new philosophy the power of law. As it relates to change in philosophy, it's like you were talking about the good old boy network. The change in philosophy and systems reform, um, you know, I'm assuming especially right now, everyone's talking about law enforcement reform. So we'll use that because of what's going on in the world. That's why these protests are happening. And truthfully, too, these protests are happening because my Caucasian, which I refer to as my vanilla brothers and sisters, (laughs) our vanilla brothers and sisters have for too long underestimated, undervalued, and marginalized our African-American population. And what I mean by that is Hmm. we have been telling, African-Americans have been telling white folks in America that... This shit's been going on. Yes, that we are living in a separate America than you. Right. And... We continue to be told, no, this is one America. This is the land of opportunity. That's your perception. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Work harder. I can't pull myself up by my bootstraps if I don't have no strings. Right. You understand? Yeah. If you give me a pair of boots and no strings and tell me to pull myself up by my bootstraps, what am I doing exactly? So what are some that, – and, that, and if we stay with that – I don't know if it's a metaphor or an, or an analogy because <laughs> I always like screw those definitions up, but what would be the bootstrings that would, what would be the bootstrings? That's easy enough. In terms of, in terms of, uh, if we're talking about like a philosophy, so we'll just go vanilla brother and sister, me as a white man, I have bootstrings. You do not. How are you getting those bootstrings through a change in philosophy with the system reform? All right. So first of all, um, my vanilla brothers and sisters, let's come to the realization. Let's come to the conclusion that you don't start. We don't start on the same starting point. Oh, I got a head start for uh, like that. That almost it. If anyone argues the head start at this point, you're you're just you're off. You're wrong, right? Correct. Like okay, it's it's not a hundred meter race for everybody, right? Like I'm starting fifty meters ahead of you. I mean, okay. it's. Okay, so now if we understand that through no no work of your own, right, because you didn't place yourself 50 yards, um, 50 meters up in the race, right? Yeah. You showed up and you were 50 meters ahead. So if through no work of your own you recognize that you are 50 meters ahead, when there are things put in place – to level that playing field, stop looking at those institutions, those policies, or those things as though it is a detriment to you. 
It is not a detriment to you. It is a remedy for a societal ill that occurred before you. And see, part of the problem is we have lots of Caucasian people who look at what some of those things and I'll use affirmative action programs as the example. They look at affirmative action programs as though those programs hurt them. They don't. The truth of the matter is, and you can look this up, white women have benefited more from affirmative action programs than any other subpopulation. And I'm not saying that they should not have, because as women, they are an underclass. But when you think about recipients of affirmative action programming, who comes to mind for you first? Black. And it's just not true. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. No, I I mean, I, I, you wouldn't, you absolutely wouldn't think that because if you walk into anybody and you hear them, if, if you hear, if you heard people complain about, oh, I'm not, I missed out on a scholarship. Oh, I can't get into this school because they have to take this many minorities. Now, hold on. Stop right there. That's the first thing that you hear. Yeah, but hold on. Freeze right there. I missed out on this on this scholarship. Right. And I couldn't get in because they take this many minorities. How many freaking people at that institution are there on legacy? Oh, people who would not and do not have the grades otherwise to get in. This is one of the things that I absolutely love about um, George W. Bush. He made it known that he got in a Yale on legacy. Oh, no, 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 no. He doesn't, he does he doesn't even BS it. Oh, no, 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 no. And he tells you, I'm fortunate for the opportunity. And he tells you that one of the reasons that he went into the military, yes, uh, yes, his father and his grandfather were military men, but he thought that that would give him an opportunity to actually show his worth based off of his own merits. And he said, that's why he went into the military. So he was letting you know that he had privilege all around him, including how he got into one of America's top institutions. So if it could happen, if a, if a future president of America could be the beneficiary of a system put in place that was not based on merit, then what the hell is your real grievance with a system that is trying to account for um, individuals who were historically locked out? Take those Ivy League um, schools, for example. 100% of the Ivy League schools in America were established with or on the backs of slaves. Hmm. So if they are granting minority scholarships, 400 years later, how much wealth have they amassed uh, in, in that time oh, in between? Jesus. Yeah, man. You think of their endowments. Correct. I mean, bill, you're not even talking millions. You're, you're billions with Correct. those schools. Billions. Didn't you, didn't you see Georgetown University um, two years ago? Um, they acknowledged their um, their origins was in the trafficking of, uh, of slaves. I did not. And they're not the only one. There's actually There's actually a book. Um, I think it's called, and I'm sorry, it's escaping me right now, but it's called, um, uh, I know in the name, it's the history of, um, of the slave trade and, um, America's top, uh, universities, the Ivy league. Um, I'll get that name and I'll shoot you. I'll shoot you that information. It's a pretty good book. I I read about half of it, but I heard the author do an interview and um, I only got halfway through it before I picked up something else that I found more appealing and I never got back to it. <laughs> dude, I, I do that. Um, dude, I'm such a book hopper. Like, like all of a sudden you come across someone, someone like tweets something, someone shows an image of something. And all of a sudden you're like, oh man, I got to read that. 
that's a that, that's a funny trait that we share. <laughs> right. Um. So l- yeah, let me not think about funny traits that we share. So policy changes. Number one, can we embrace affirmative action as an attempt to, or I shouldn't say just affirmative action, as an example, attempts to level starting lines, attempts to even starting lines? What are I, think, I think we have to. For sure. Um, is there something else politically that people should be listening for, their politicians who will be running in November, to embrace that can help this reform actually gain like legislative traction all right so i've got a list of ideas because when we say talk about this reform it, it would lead one to believe that there is already a standardized or a uniform agenda that folks are promoting and that we should uh work affirmatively to implementing this agenda no such agenda exists that, right that, now that, dude that, yeah that that's my whole thing is like everyone wants to support it and instead of like what else can you do to prepare yourself from when the protest and the signs go away is where my mind goes, right? Okay. All right. So let me drop this on you. And, and I've got a list. I've got a lot of ideas about how we do this. But first and foremost, one of the things that I will need people out here holding these signs to understand is so protesting, right, has always been the visual arm of reform. Right. Then there's always a non-visual component, and that component always consisted of the negotiations and demands for change. Right. So we'll use the civil rights movement as an example. During the civil rights movement, you saw the lunch counter sit-ins. You saw Dr. King and others um, like SNCC um, marching. You saw those boycotts. That's the visual arm because it need to be seen that people are working for change. But then there is also the negotiation sessions, you know, with Dr. King and the Montgomery Improvement Association. And then later, Dr. King and SNCC and SCLC, when they would um, work with uh, JFK. Right. They work with the Kennedy administration trying to pressure that administration into the comprehensive civil rights um, act legislation, which JFK was assassinated before he could get it implemented. But Dr. King kept up those same strategies with LBJ and LBJ ultimately moved those um, ideas into policy. That's the arm that people didn't see. You saw the protesting. You didn't see the negotiations. We must have negotiations. And in order to have negotiations, you must have a list of asks or demands. I like asks because demands sound so (laughs) aggressive and and, and authoritative. And it's not that I'm a non-aggressive person, but – if we have to cooperatively work together, you yeah. don't start from a point of aggression. Yeah. Right? Well, again, it's level playing field, right? You don't, you don't want to assume power or authority over someone. You want to assume partnership. Right. Now, as it relates to these, you know, the protesting for systemic change to law enforcement, I think we have to start with law enforcement officer accountability. Mm. People are seeing far too frequently in African. Listen, my grandfather used to talk about police brutality. Um, I heard it from my father's generation. I didn't hear it specifically from my father, but I heard it from my uncles. My father's generation talked about it. it's in the music. 
If you go back and you listen to the music, it's in the music. It's in African American music. So, where they're t- go ahead. No, well, I, I just and again, this is this this may be real stupid, but uh, I'm going for a jog and KRS-One comes on, and he has the overseer, overseer. Yep. Now say it faster, overseer, officer, 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 and you're just like, holy shit! Like patrol the plantations and patrol. You're like. He he's putting it together, and I believe that song came out mid to late eighties. Yep, late eighties, like eighty seven or eighty eight. Right? Like, dude, you hear those lyrics, and you're just like, it, it's been there. It's the feeling and sentiment has been there for accountability for these officers to not be overseers. They are servants, not overseers. Right, and, and look at the look at the nineteen look at like nineteen seventy three Sanford and Son, right? And you look at that takes place in um in a suburb, well not suburb, but a section of Los Angeles, um Watts, right? And you look at the interaction that uh, Fred has with the community police officers, and listen to the things that Fred talks about. You know, um, they had one episode on there where they were talking about um, uh, hypertension. Um, kill is the leading killer of, of uh, African Americans, and Fred jokingly says, "You crazy? I thought that was the police." <laughs> that's 1973. <laughs> that you know that that's there. So it, it's it's been in the media. We have to understand that we need law enforcement officer accountability. So the question then becomes, how how do we get that? Yeah, no doubt. And, how do and you then, get that? And then for the people out there who ask, well. Why do we need um, law enforcement officer accountability? Nah, I, I, if you're still asking that question after all this, well, I, I'll let you go ahead and answer. I, I shouldn't say that, but like, it, it's honestly at this point, it's a stupid question to even ask. Like, we clearly need the the. Didn't the officer have twelve previous charges? Who, yes, who murdered George Floyd? Seventeen. 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 Fuck it. Like, think about that. 17 now, but complaints. now, but now, in all fairness, in all fairness, I'm a fair guy. Please, yes, listen. There are lots of people who can call up and make a complaint. True. You know what I'm saying? Um, you know, and that stuff will go in your file if they're doing it. If they're doing it properly, if the agency's doing it properly, they all go in your file. But it, the question becomes: What type of investigation occurred around the complaint? Was the complaint found to be bogus, or did the complaint have merit? So we don't know how many of those had merit versus how many were bogus. That's one of the reasons that you know, even though I advocate for making the um, record of complaints for law enforcement officers public. That's also one of the reasons that I also don't place the same weight on um, reading how many complaints were against an officer. Because what if I work? Okay, if I got 17 complaints against me and I work at Lewis Police Department, it's like, whoa, yeah, this MFR does not (laughs) need to have a job. Yeah. What if I work New York City? Yeah, when the population's just (laughs) way different. You're like, oh, man, everyone in New York's a jerk. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, it's relative. No, that's true. That number is very relative. So then it would come down to the investigative body or the board that would actually have the wherewithal to, is it fire? Is it suspend? Is it retrain? When you hit, when when a complaint is serious enough to say, whoa, we need to, like, dude, you're off patrol. What What's the remedy? All right. So the remedy becomes, in in my mind, first of all, every agency kind of they operate based on what the 
policy is for that agency. So there is no blanket policy. Just many of them have true. lots of things in common. Yeah. You know, in one agency, it may be the police chief. In a small town, it might be the police chief who handles all these functions, right? Yeah. From um, from discipline. Um, generally, especially in Delaware, certain complaints against law enforcement officers go to a actual. It's not a review board, but it's something known as the police chief, the police chief's council, and the police chief's council hears certain gripes, um, you know, that officers have. And basically they are the um, administrative arm to the police officer's bill of rights. If you ask me, system reform has to begin with the police officer's bill of rights in each state. And here's why that needs to be. A police officer is the only profession in the United States where he has, he or she has the legal authority to detain you, to arrest you, or to kill you. No other job in the United States has those three components that are held by the same person. As such, with that type of authority, I believe that you must also have a higher level of accountability if you have that type of authority. So You would hope. I, exactly. So you have to look at what establishes that authority that allows officers to evade accountability? And to me, that starts with the Police Officers' Bill of Rights because that outlines everything from the way that they will file grievances to the way that they can legally even be interviewed um, for you know following a complaint or um, following a crime. Right? Some of these set forth that an officer has 72 hours to get legal counsel before they can be questioned in some places. Man, in 72 hours, you can cook up a you heck of get, a defense. Yeah, dude, you're, 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 you're getting some phones, you're having some conversations off the record, and you're, uh, you're getting some stories straight. Right. Can I, can I just ask, so when you're saying Bill of Rights... Yeah, it's actually called, you can Google, if you're in any particular state, take Delaware, for example. Okay. You can Google Delaware Police Officers Bill of Rights, and it will take you to the Delaware State Code. And that's which, not a union contract. That's actual no. legislation. Right, that's legislation. Gotcha. That is codified. Okay. Gotcha. That's state law. Gotcha. Now, you bring up an interesting component the Fraternal Order of Police or the police unions. The police unions are the conduit for helping these officers escape accountability. Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not saying their function is to help poor cops escape accountability because the FOP does way more than that. Right. But what I'm saying is one of the rights that these police officers have is to legal counsel and the legal counsel generally comes via the union or the fraternal order of police. And the, the, and, fr go and, ahead. No, I'm sorry. I, I, I got to get better, man. I apologize, but I'm just, I, I wanted to reinforce unions in general. I'm a teacher. If I get held up, the union's sole job based on what I'm paying them is to make sure I continue to earn my paycheck. Well, they're responsible. So technically, their responsibility is to advocate for the rights of you, for of their members. Yeah. Now, that does include ensuring 
um, the ongoing continuance of your livelihood via pay. Yeah. But it also involves things like your safety, right? right. You, you know, working conditions would be squat if it weren't for unions. Yeah. So let you know, there's way more to what they do, and which is why I want yeah, to yeah. make certain that I point out that yeah. they do a lot more than provide the legal yeah, counsel. Yeah, it's and and that's the that's one of the hardest parts. Is I'm sure cops don't want bad cops out there. And you need protective rights. And it's trying to figure out what are that what is the language that is keeping people in jobs or in positions of authority and power on the streets where they can be deadly. And why why can't they just just dude fucking keep your job and go be a desk clerk so you're not fucking with anyone? Do you know what I'm saying? Like it Yeah. Yeah, for example, you know the you know the um Minneapolis um police union is in the process of preparing um, their actual motions to have the jobs restored for those four officers that were fired. I I feel like they almost legally have to, right, to be a union. Don't they have to, like, protest that or or appeal that? Did they – in Minneapolis, did they appeal when the um, the, um, the Arab gentleman, the gentleman uh, from Africa – um, when he shot the uh, the white lady in the alley, did they appeal his? Unfamiliar with that case. I, I forget his name, and I'm, I'm I'm sorry, but there was there was a um, he looks African American, but um, he's actually a um, nationalized citizen. Oh shit! And, um, and he was I, a cop, I, and he murdered someone. Yeah, he he shot a uh, he shot a a um, a white lady who was oh, visiting America, and he killed her, and um, he's now doing twelve years. Um, for wow. second, uh, for second degree murder, um, for that. Wow. So yeah, think on that. Wow. Right. Think now, on that. The union is required to provide counsel, but in providing counsel, the quality of the counsel uh, of the counsel that they provide, it, you know, that's subjective, right? And what they suggest to a person in this situation, that's somewhat subjective too, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, you have to look at that. So the unions have a lot of influence and they play a role in this. I think that you've got to um, have your legislators um, work with these police unions and get these police unions to understand that, you know, in the future contracts, certain things are not going to be permissible. Well, and I was these- about to ask you that. Is there any particular language or any particulars um, and maybe language is the wrong word to use because lawyer wise, um, I, I wouldn't even know, but certain things that you would say, man, we got to make sure this is in like an officer can be removed for blank or reassigned for blank or what kind of language would really be beneficial for systematic change. All right. So for me, the very first thing that I want to see, I want to see the police officer's bill of rights. And I want to see that the um, legal code for all these jurisdictions say that when a law enforcement is involved in, uh, in a shooting or activities that create major bodily harm or result in the loss of life, that those cases will immediately be remanded to a independent prosecutor that is appointed by a federal, by a federal watchdog entity. It could be the U.S. Attorney's Office um, for that district, but it has to be out-of-network attorneys. I feel like that has to ha- – prosecutors. I feel like that has to happen because we've had enough of these foxes guarding the hen houses. 
you cannot have a local prosecutor and I'm not I'm not banging Yeah, you're on, not throwing shade, man. This is a theory. Right. Yeah. And and I'll and I'll show you and I'll give you an example why. You the local police officers are the ones who get the evidence and who arrest the people and follow the law. These are the cases that local prosecutors prosecute, right? Yeah, dude, they, they give them the case files. How do you right. think those fucking files are filled? They're filled with their fellow officers work. Right now, let me show you an inherent conflict here. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, please do. Say a particular officer, I mean, a particular prosecutor has worked 10 separate cases that have come from the evidence gathering and the legal testimony of Cliff Howell, police officer Cliff Howell. If this prosecutor finds out in the 11th case that they're working that Cliff plants evidence oh. on, on folks. What about the others? Uh, what about those other What 10? about those others? And by the way, I've heard Cliff Howell is a great fucking cop. And now all of a sudden you blew my mind. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And, and and here's where here's where I want to make sure people know and understand that this isn't universal. There are some prosecutors out there who say, I don't give a damn that I've got ten cases that hinged on Cliff's testimony. Yeah. This MFR is 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 not a good cop. And if this requires all ten of my cases to be reviewed and opened up, then so be it. I will not move forward with this testimony of this poor officer. Now, there are some who would do that. Now I'm asking you. We gonna, I'm just asking you here, bro. Yeah. If promotions to judgeships, I was about to say percentages, right? <laughs> What's my percent of conviction rate? Or, right. Wait, are, am I dropping to seventy percent? Because when I was in school, that's a D. I, I'm not getting a better job with a D. I gotta right. stay at ninety three percent. That's an A. I gotta right. right, like, and isn't that kind of what it comes down with? And maybe I'm overly ignorant, but I feel like I've overheard those conversations of. What is your percent of conviction? Correct. Now, yeah. again, let's be clear. There are some prosecutors who don't give a damn about that stuff. Yeah, they want to do what's it. right. But right. I'm asking you on average, do you think the average person? Oh, it's a thought. It, it's a conversation for sure. <laughs> right. Dude, now, it's, it, C's might get degrees, but A's get promotions. Okay. Now, should any person or family who's looking for actual justice for a loved one, should they be forced to wait and see whether a particular prosecutor is going to do the right thing or have to worry that maybe this prosecutor's relationship with the local um, police departments yeah. is too cozy for me to get a fair trial? And that's, and I think you just said it right there with local. And that's the inherent thing that might get very overlooked is a lot of these systems. When people say systems, I feel they think big systems, I feel, are very small, are very inclusive, yes, are, are very exclusive. And, and, and they want to maintain. They're almost like organ – they're almost like – I shouldn't say parasites, but I want to say parasites. But they're – they're, they're their own entities that just want to thrive and they don't want to allow others in for the most part, I feel systems right. are. And like people can overestimate that, yo, it might come down to like just seven people from start to finish that are making all sorts of decisions for guilt or innocence. 
right. for prosecution and arrest. Right. Next thing, next action step. I want police officers who are fired for misconduct to be ineligible for recertification as a police officer. Can I tell you that blows my fucking mind? And I, I, I don't mean to get vulgar because I know you're not a man who curses and I need oh, to get no, better no, no, at no, no, apologizing. No, no. People who really know me know I use colorful language just on my <laughs> on these professional platforms. <laughs> I keep it real mild. <laughs> but, dude, like, dude, that, like, I, God, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have interrupted you, but like that, that is something that boggled my mind to find out like you could be fired for that and then it's like, man, well, let's wait a month and just apply. Yeah, not just that. Let's let's look at it. Let's look at it. Um, and how many of these officers with these with these poor track records, um, they just graduate in their behaviors. The the gentleman who sh- the gentleman who shot and killed the African, the unarmed African-American man in South Carolina. Right. The one who shot him in the back and then through the through um what appeared to be oh, a, a gun shit. or some object near his body he chased him down with the fences I, and right. i can't remember the name either i apologize but that was several years ago right like three to four years ago yeah but that guy that guy um had a bad record at another police department before that jesus Christ! the guy man. who killed tamir rice uh 13 year old tamir rice um in the park with a with a uh with a cap with a um bb gun Right. The cop who killed him had been this. He had come from a police department that um, he was discharged from in Cincinnati because he had too many complaints. So let me ask you this as a humanistic aspect. If you get fired for being a, a if, if you get fired from being a, a cop. Should there be vocational training to help you to find another means to provide for your family? Hell no. If you're a truck driver, hey, listen. That's a great talk point. Talk to a truck driver. That's a great point. Who gets a DUI. Great point. You're done. And who can no longer get a commercial certification. You're fucking done. You're done. Your, your livelihood you is go. done. And ain't nobody helping you out. There you go. Now, there I'm, you go. I, I guess I'm just trying to find that, like, how do you not get them rehired? Is is why I'm throwing that out there. A police officer Uh, cannot. A police officer cannot perform um, police duties without a certification. So you got to take the certification, and then it's on them. And dude, you got to find another way. Go wait tables. Go make yourself through night school, and go find. Go be an accountant. Go teach. Go go if if you want. Go to school. Um, go to school, up your education. If you want to go somewhere and you want to teach yeah. um, about law enforcement, there's, there, I don't think there should be any blackout on it. People make mistakes in their life. Right. And hell, your students could benefit from knowing the type of shit that a poor that a poor officer did in the field, but help these future officers know and understand the importance of following policy and the importance of doing the right thing. I'd have no issue with that. I'd have no issue at all. If a, if a fired police officer was a professor um, on some campus. Now, if, if I'm that school, I'm making sure that before he gets any type of tenure, I know what he's talking about. (laughs) I got my damn eye on him. Right. Are, Are you sitting in on a couple of those classes? Just to make sure. I'm sitting in on a couple few. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sitting in on a couple few. (laughs) And man, I know you're pressed for time, dude. And I so appreciate you coming on. 
So what yeah. I've got and tell me what I'm wrong. If we're walking away with actionable steps mm-hmm. that we want to maybe call a legislator and say, hey, are you for independent prosecutors to right. review cases that are not local? Right. Are you for taking away certification for officers who are found guilty of misconduct? Correct. Those are two. Have I missed um, something else are, are, you have said are you, previously? Are you for an amendment and adjustments to the Police Officers' Bill of Rights? Okay. That's and, the one I missed. And. But what are what, we amending? Let me ask you that. So, I mean, all of them have Bill of Rights, and, and those Bill of Rights also establish some great things for police officers. So you don't, you can't say, I want you to scrap the police officer's Bill of Rights and start over. Right. Because this is only impacting maybe 10% of what the police yeah. officer's that, Bill of Rights and, is. And that is the fucked up like conundrum, right? We're not talking about every cop. That, like, the right. majority, the, 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 you almost want to say vast majority of cops... Right. are good fucking guys that are risking their lives to try to just make your kids okay with playing. And, and let me say this, because because I feel like um, I'm internally conflicted. Right. So I believe that 10%, I believe that the behaviors of 10% of the police force paint the entire force in a bad light. 100%. I agree but, with that. But I stay away from what percentage of officers are good cops and here's why oh good people don't watch bad people do bad shit to people and do nothing jesus so god i so want to get i know you're fucking pressed for time man go ahead i know know you're pressed for time go ahead so that one can i tell you my heart sank when i found out that one officer who was on the job for four days just knowing office politics just knowing corporate culture, just thinking you got a job that you feel is a career. Mm-hmm. And now after four days, you're going after a, you're going to go fucking over someone who has seniority. There's something, and I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it is. There is something about seniority while you are a newbie in a position that is almost paralyzing. Correct. And remember the movie Training Day with Denzel Washington? Yeah, dude, in it? great example. Great Real life fu- training yeah. day, wasn't it? Dude, I mean, like, you're just fucking, like, you get swallowed into this black hole and you're like, this is how shit is? This is the norm? And you're, and, and like, and I, I have not researched that individual, but in my head, I'm like, if it were me, I'm four days into a career that I've just invested how much time in? how much of my life to be, I was selected and I feel like I've made it. Am I fucking that up day four? Yeah. Yeah. And you're you're making like quasi masculine suggestions like, Hey man, that's enough. Hey man, roll them over. And you're getting turned down by superior officers. Yeah. Aren't you kind of taught to respect their authority? And one of my co-hosts on on my podcast, um, he's a a, um, current law enforcement officer. He brought something to my attention, too. Okay, so one of those newbies, one of them rookies, he said one of the things that the public doesn't understand about the world of policing is – so one of the standards that's used to determine if you get promoted is the Uh, word of your training officer. Fucking peer review. Don't say that. 
Yes, Jeez, sir. Yes, sir. So oh if you God. start off on a job, oh if you start God. off on a job and you're told to do something and you don't do it, that's going in your jacket, man. Dude. And <laughs> that's going in your jacket, and, man. And like and that's something where uh, again, the state employee in me, and I'm very fortunate, right? Like my my, my pay is based primarily on years of experience and credits of education. Mm-hmm. So it's a very clear matrix. As long as my boss rates me as satisfactory, I'm getting paid and I'm going to the next level. It is, it, it's very hard for my boss as a teacher to prove that I am incompetent and fuck up my salary, fuck up my like forward momentum for a career. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. don't feel that that is the case with police officers. That's correct. I feel like there's a hell of a lot of power in whoever is above you that you're training. And don't they train for like six months to a year with that person? That part I don't know, but I know I know my co-host reached out to me and he said, look here, something that I need you to consider in this situation. When we found out that two of those people had been on the job for less than five days, yeah, he said, listen, in policing, you know, especially as a rookie, your train, your training officer has a whole lot of control over whether you get promoted to the next step. And he said, and if you just getting into this business and it's going in your jacket that, that you don't follow orders, yeah. you're done. So that, that, that's what he told me. How about <laughs> this? And, and I have not researched this. This is me thinking out loud. Why the fuck is that guy? Mr. Eight minutes and 40 some seconds. Why is he a training officer with that history of complaints? There you go, man. Is that something to fucking like consider? Like, why are we putting these people with a history? And again, I've not been in that industry. I do not know what is like a standard amount of complaints, like a bad email to my boss. I dude, I've fucking got like people complain about me educating their sixth, seventh, eighth graders, right? Like Mm -hmm. I've been complained about and I don't know what my file would look like if all that was compiled. But in my head, I'm like, I feel like it would not be 17 of that magnitude. And then if it was, would I be a mentor to other teachers? Would you trust me with 17 complaints from different people over years to train other teachers on how to educate the youth? Would you empower me in that way? I would. Right? Like, it doesn't pass the say it out loud test. Right. Jesus, dude. I I had no idea about that peer review being so influential to promotions. Because again, you're not making bank early on, dude. The reason you get that job is because you're trying to build a career where you make money on the tail end. Right. Absolutely. God, so that's something right there. How are we picking our training officers? Mm -hmm. Was that part of your seven? I don't mean to step on it. Yep. Was it really? Yep. Oh, wow. Look at you being a fucking instructor, man, leading me to it. You led me to the water and I drank it up. Yep. So, so, you know, training, training in all forms under it far too long. And and again, I want to credit my co-host and this is, this is why, you know, having people in your network that are experts in some of this information that you are not is valuable because though I work in the behavioral health um, industry, I've never been a law enforcement officer. Right. Um, He pointed out that People talk about, you know, we need better training. We need better training. We need better training. BS. He says the American uh, law enforcement officers are some of the most trained and best trained people in the world. It's not 
the training. It's the policies and it's when people ignore or abandon the training. For example, there's no damn, there's no training anywhere in the country that I know of that says a restraint move consists of placing your leg on a carotid artery of someone's neck. That's not going that's not found in any training manual on at any agency in the United States. So that's not a training issue. So what you saw there is not a training issue. I would argue the better issue or the bigger issue is the fact that a this officer was in the field with that type of jacket and b that he's training others. Yeah. See the difference? No, well, yeah, because, again, so if you take it all the way back to, and it might be, a, again, analogy, metaphor, whatever, if, what are you talking about with your kids at that dinner table? Well, what do you think that training officer is talking about with his coworker on those rides? What's that coworker seeing from his training officer, which is his de facto employment parent right. that's influencing his upbringing? his worldview of what this job should be. That's right. God, dude, I, I had not honestly, and I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic. I had not even gone down that road of training officer rookie. That explains so much about why there were the rookies there. Cause they're paired up. They're mm-hmm. paired up to learn. Yep. Fucking a. Yep. Yeah. Like, so the training officer selection process, are you, are you in any way familiar with how those are those guys like, Oh man, you hit 10 years. You're good. Are you familiar at all with how they're selected? No, I'm not. Yeah. So then that would be something to just ask someone as far as a politician. Hey, what are your recommendations for who we put new cops with? So they learn how to do the job, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, you gotta you gotta look top to bottom. You have to look at what is going on and what is happening inside of your agencies. You gotta look at the culture. You know, do you have a culture of misconduct or do you have a culture that is actually welcoming to officers who out other poor officers? One thing that my law enforcement friends tell me is that they all know who the bad cops are. But the question is, if the normal system, if the legal system won't hold uh, these officers accountable for their actions, you think that the actual agency will hold them accountable? And if you're the person who turns them in, you're fucked. And they, you're and fucked they, professionally. There you go. If you're they escape fucked. accountability, you are screwed. You're fucked professionally. So I was listening to the Bill Simmons pod. Are you familiar with Bill Simmons? I'm not. Okay. So he's a sports guy. He's been on ESPN. He made his own website, like super sports guy, but he had a guy on, um, Decray McKesson. I don't know if I'm saying that name right. Or, but he's, he's a social justice advocate and he's a database compiler. And he's basically, he's found statistics that say police office or police stations Jurisdictions with 35% or more of African-American officers have a significantly, a statistical significant difference in violence towards African-Americans. But 35% seems to be the tipping point where you can't have 30, 
25%, 15, 10, because all of a sudden you're still ousted by the system itself. So not, not to get you away from your seven, but kind of going back almost to affirmative action, should there be like a huge emphasis on hiring minority officers, recruiting minority officers, minority athletes, minority military servers to become police officers because somehow that helps de-escalate and stop violence. So we know that in every profession, um, where there's diversity, the companies that are the most diverse tend to excel in that occupation, in that field, no matter what it is. So true. Um, so law enforcement would be no different. Um, one of the things that would find, you know, matching it by demographically, what I would push for is that you want departments, and, and I'd say the same thing about teachers. Oh, yeah, you, for sure. You want, you want police departments and you want um, educational institutions to match the demographics of the communities that they serve. That's first because it, it'd be unrealistic that if you're in a community that is only comprised of 5 percent African-Americans that yeah. you have 35 percent representation on the force. That's a great that, point. But at, at the same time, they're probably not the ones that are dealing with police violence in this clip. Well, I don't know, because oh. I think that when you look at the data across the board, you know, African-Americans, regardless of the locale, That's they're true. typically the ones who are uh, who wind up proportionally, disproportionately impacted by, um, oh, law, yeah. by law enforcement aggression. So, uh, yeah, I'm, my um, again, just listening to him speak on that podcast, he said in Minnesota, you are if you are black you are 13 times more likely in Minnesota to die from a police officer compared to a white counterpart. And the national average was three times more likely. Right. So like, yeah. And, and yeah, but man, that's, so if you're trying though to like, how would those communities get that up to the tipping point of, we have enough diversity to deal with the minorities in our population? Cause you almost need, it, 35% is not a majority, but it's close. It's close. You know, like, right. like how do you get that diversity into those police departments? Cause they're great fucking jobs, man. You can earn all sorts of money. Like you're educated. Right. You're, you're physically fit. You're a sound thinker. It's a, you're, you have purpose. It's a great job to be a police officer. Right. I think it starts with, it starts with, um, you know, in your hiring practices, you know, what is your hiring policy? Do you have do you have a clear set of standards and do you stick to those standards? Do you do you do you not abandon your standards so that um, your former Sergeant Joe's son, Timmy, uh, gets on the force? Right. Or yeah. that you hire Timmy because that's Joe's son versus um, Ahmed, who was tops of his class. And who has all the qualifications, but hey, Ahmed is not Timmy. Because he's on you know, the board. Yeah. Right. If if you have merit-based hiring systems and you take out the ability for those good old boy networks and, and for non-merit-based um, hires, then you will, by nature, you will have um, better police departments because you're getting the best candidates, not just people that you're comfortable with. Should those hiring practices be made public like those interview scores or whatever they do no. 
No, no, because that's that. So an interview, I, I don't, I don't think so. I'm just one person. I don't think so. But what I think is that they should have, or the better ones, particularly like I, I advocate for this, especially in the educational system um, and in law enforcement system, they should have a public component to it. They should have on those interviewing or those hiring panels, they should have an individual from the public there. Someone, someone who can tell you, this is how I scored an individual, uh, or this is how I've scored several individuals that have not gone on or or been recommended for hiring. Whereas this individual that you continue to have problems with, I had scored this individual pretty low. Gotcha. But no, I don't think that people should know that Cliff House scored a 70 out of a possible yeah. 100. So, right? It's, yeah. it's almost like the poor fucking quarterbacks in the NFL when their Wonderlick scores come out and they right. make them look like idiots. You're like, I, I whatever. Um, that Dude, that's super interesting to have some involved community members on that hiring board. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that... I mean, educationally, that's not happening. It's straight administration right? that I can speak of. And I don't know about law enforcement, but I would doubt it. Yep. Shit, man. Yep. I, I know you wanted to get to seven, man. And again, we're pressed for – I, so I, I to get My off. final one there is just um, I think that we have to apply a new pressure on the insurance agencies who provide insurance to these police departments. Oh, See, what do you mean? Oh, when so when when East Bumblefuck uh, Police Department <laughs> oh gets so you sued, do curse good <laughs> the, the, the city of East Bumblefuck doesn't pay that the insurance company pays it all East Bumblefuck pays is the copay right or or the the deductible if the deductible if the deductible for this type of behavior is $100,000 and that is a million dollar award the insurance company pays 900,000 stop can 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 i Bro, jesus tell dude me i'm, I'm knew, trying tell me you knew that no dude i'm 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 being 100% honest with you as an individual who has spoken to people who in an educational field have had to go to court I have not heard that you are insured for payouts. Yeah. And I completely did not think that that went to the law. So after Rodney King, oh. LAPD had so many uh, of these civil cases. And this is one of the things that made Johnny Cochran so successful. right? <laughs> because Johnny Cochran, when, when he prosecuted departments – he prosecuted them wanting the departments to settle. And what he would require the departments to do was re require training. And then he went after the biggest possible settlement because he knew that that would place pressure on those departments to have to be better because the insurance companies, it's just like you and your car. Would, you go rise, out here, would raise the premiums. You darn right. Or you go out here and you get three DUIs, that insurance company is going to drop you. They drop police departments too. And when a police department cannot be insured, they become disbanded. That's what happened in Ferguson. Is that a like that's an actual fact? If you don't have insurance as a police department, you're done. Right. A city's not going to pay, man. You think <laughs> East Bumblefuck could pay out two 
separate million dollar, two separate million dollar uh, settlements in one year for for bad officer conduct. Not happening. Not happening. And remember, the guy who killed Mike Brown, he came from a neighboring department that had been disbanded because they could no longer be insured due to the number of um, civil complaints that they lost. Jesus. I, I literally had no idea, man. Yeah. Like, no, sir, sir, never. I've, and I'm a CNN watcher just because I like to go anti Trump to see how they spin it because they hate him so fucking much. Never heard this at all about the insurance aspect of it. Mm hmm. So what would you do to apply pressure to these insurance companies? You would just say like you cannot insure departments with multiple infractions. So the way you put pressure, the way you place pressure on them is you begin to say as consumers, hey, look, because when it all comes down to an America, usually at the highest levels, you've got very few actors like there may there may be. 150 different insurance companies. But at the end of the day, there's typically three or four major insurance carriers. So at the end of the day, it's going to filter up to one of those four. What you want to do is get to a point where you, you say as citizens, but then as states, you begin to say, look, if you continue, this is as a citizen, that we do not want to support or pay for um, insurance from companies that pay out these misconduct cases over and over again. So if that's yeah, because um, it's tax dollars, right? Those so are that's, your taxes. So that's at a personal level, but at a state level, you could say the states can have legislation and policy through their insurance commissioners department that says, "Hey, listen here, um, if you pay out more than this number of these cases here." We will restrict your ability to provide this level of insurance to these type of agencies. You can still provide auto insurance, but we won't certify you to provide insurance, um, civil liability insurance. Well, if, if a, a company is not going to let East Bumblefuck cost them the ability to make millions of dollars from other agencies who don't have such problems. So now East Bumblefuck can't be insured. If they can't be insured, they're disbanded. And they got to get their shit right so that their record allows them to be insured. Correct. Jesus. Multiple multiple ways multiple ways to get at the fruit inside, to get at the at the fruit inside of that skin. Man, I should have fucking had, man. That's I'm trying to recap and I was writing so much, man. I should have took better notes to be honest with you, professor. Um, I got you. Cause I'm, I got try you. I'm trying to like go over the seven. So you're amending, you want a community individual on interview companies. You want to, oh, on, on interview panels, interview it would be panels. great on interview panels for police officers. It would be great if you had a individual from the community, um, be a part of those panels, have one of those, have one of those seats at the table. You want to speak about civil liability with insurance companies and limit their ability to insure departments that have a record of misconduct. I want to pressure insurance company and insurance carriers within a, within a particular jurisdiction to not 
provide further insurance for repeat offenders of um, civil misconduct cases. We want independent prosecutors that are not local to review. And I forget how you would, because you did not say just death. I, I believe it was something like Seriously, serious bodily harm. I want independent prosecutors to oversee the prosecution in any case where a officer is involved in a case of serious bodily harm or loss of life. We cannot have foxes guarding a hen house any longer. Taking away certification for police officers who were dismissed from their department for those types of behaviors. You're a police officer and you were dismissed from your department due to misconduct. You should not have the right or ability to go somewhere else and do the same thing. It cost people their lives. In Dover, Delaware, we had a police officer who broke a gentleman's jaw. Um, that officer was allowed to resign. And that officer went just over our state's borders to a small agency in Maryland. And within nine months in his new post, uh, he killed someone. Jesus Christ, dude. Jesus Christ. And I, I, it's, it's bad podcast hosting on my part, man, but I get so wrapped up in listening to you that I, I my notes are honestly like kind of shit. So I counted that as five. I know you had, you had seven. Police officers, Bill of Rights. That is the that is the policy and procedural arm which outlines the powers that police officers have, and it is what partially allows police officers to escape um, accountability. That's six, and the seventh is to work with the Fraternal Order of Police or the Police and Officers the Union in the local jurisdiction to ensure that they are not being an assist to escaping um, accountability for officers caught of doing wrongdoing. That's why I missed those two. And I'm not, um, uh, I'm not trying to uh, be disrespectful in any um, way, but if I'm organizing those, the last two that you said are much more topical. The last five or the first five are complete action steps. Mm-hmm. Like those are very basic things where you can ask an individual politician a question and say, are you in favor of taking away certification? Are you in favor of putting pressure on insurance companies? Are you in favor of th- those are, those are very super specific steps that people can ask their local representatives to support as they go up this chain in order to create change within the system. Am I kind of, am I thinking about that the right way? That's correct. And then final, then final thought, um, for folks who want to engage the political process, a couple things you need to know. Uh, the federal election date is Tuesday, November the 3rd. Um, to be a part of political change, you must exercise your right to vote. It is America's most fundamental principle. And for people of color, it is utterly important because you did not always have this right. You must know the With guidelines women. and the rules of your local jurisdiction. Here in Delaware, there are primary 
primaries for the general election that are taking place on July the 7th. The registration deadline for those primaries is Saturday, June the 13th. That's here in Delaware. Also, in order to vote in any election, you must be registered. In Delaware, you can go to ivote.de.gov and register online to vote, or you can go and register at any of the state uh, Department of Election sites. And when you register... You are not allowed in Delaware, if you go independent, to vote in primaries That's correct. for any particular party, right? You have to register Democrat or Republican in order to actually partake in the primaries, or am I wrong that, about that? That's correct. That's in Delaware, but you got to know the rules of your um, yeah. jurisdiction because at last time I checked, I believe there were either five or eight jurisdictions where you could still vote in a primary, even if you were registered independent. So you've got to know the rules of your particular area. In Delaware, you cannot, as you uh, stated. Got you, man. Dude, the, the, and I honestly, man, like the community individual on the interview company, the insurance stuff I had no idea about, like no idea. The certification, no idea about, no idea about. And I want to say the independent prosecutor, I had an idea like that. That's almost like common sense type shit, Mm -hmm. but taking away certification, having community individuals be able to give qualitative stories about why someone was or was not hired and pressuring insurance companies. To me, those three things are the three that I'm walking away from where I'm like, I want to ask somebody about that. Like, are you going to get my vote by making a change to this system with those three things? Yeah. And, and to, and to show you how, um, you know, politics and to be being astute and aware of politics plays a role. Um, in the previous presidential um, administration, a previous president put forth a platform uh, called the 21st Century Policing, and it outlined several actionable steps. One of those steps involved the assignment of independent prosecutors in cases. Another one required every um every agency that had been caught with misconduct to go under review to ensure that their policies weren't systemically creating environments where um police agencies made money off of the disenfranchisement or infringement of people's civil rights um you had an administration change and when that administration changed those functions had the oversight of the US Department of Justice Civil Rights Division you had an administration change when the administration changed one of the first things they did was cut that division's resources in half Jesus. and then the second thing they did was to release all agencies that had previously been under what's known as defense decrees which were self admissions that there was evidence found by the local, by the federal government, that they had been um, violating individual civil rights systemically. There is currently a presidential candidate who has made those things a part of his platform. Mm. If people don't know and don't understand, if you're out here, you're in these streets, and you are um, marching for change, know the platforms of the candidates. One of those candidates has a platform which is most likely 
fitting what you are discussing. At least three of these points that we talked about, actionable yeah. steps are oh. there. Another one is going the total other direction. So you got to know these folks. I can't fucking imagine Trump's friends that own all these private prisons that are on fucking government federal contracts just for keeping folk incar- incarcerated and making like, I, I forget what the number is, like a hundred grand a day or some stupid shit to they keep someone in prison. They all have a per diem. And if you don't I mean, meet it's that fucking per diem, nuts, man. you have to pay them additional money. If you don't, if you don't have all those bets yeah. filled, yeah. states or, or jurisdictions have to pay them that money. You Dude. do know that President Obama outlawed private prisons. I did. I did not. Yeah, he 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 was re, he um, canceled all new private prison contracts and was letting the contracts that were already on the books expire. Uh, Trump's administration came in and reinstituted relationships with private prisons. Such a fucking like. Why do you want to make imprisonment for profit? What does that fucking incentivize? Uh, I, so in Delaware, we don't have we don't have a accurate perception of private prisons. I tell people that here in Delaware, we don't because all our prisons are operated by the state system. So I tell people at best, I'm indifferent to the, to it. And I look at it from an academic standpoint. Um, I'm not here to tell you that private prisons in some locations would not have a purpose. If you were in some piss poor County in some piss poor state you know, incarceration is an expensive cost and it costs a whole, whole lot of money and resources right. that could be used otherwise. Right. If you at least privatize that, you bring down the impact to the average taxpayer in those places. But unfortunately, the back end of it is it creates warehousing and it creates um, quotas, just Fucking quotas, man. It's a bottom line. You need blank amount of bodies to get blank Mm -hmm. amount of money. Right. And 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 to me, that's fundamentally fucked up. Like make, make the fuck, like ship them fucking five hours if, or some shit. Like, I I don't want to get all vulgar with it, but like in my mind, I understand people need to visit. You need to be in a proximity. Like I get that concept, but privatizing prisons. And I've spoken to a couple of people on this podcast about that and their experiences with the privatization. It, it, it becomes for-profit incarceration. And that's not what systems, jails, should be about. It should not be meant to keep you in there so they can keep getting checks. Think about a hospital. Would a hospital continue to diagnose you as being sick just to get money for you being in a bed? Right. I mean, that's where my mind goes with it. And I like, I can't, I can't justify it, but I I get the tax base argument. I I get the, if you're super rural and what do you want to do with your farmers or, you know, your, your sparse density and population, I get that. But man, it just, I, it does not sit well with me at all. The privatization of prisons. Right. That's right, man. Dude, professor, I know you said you had an hour, you gave me an hour and a half um, and, and then some. But I really appreciate you giving these specifics that um, hopefully people in Delaware and honestly, like whoever listens across the country, like call, email, ask, right? Go to a, a town hall and hit someone with a question about what are you going to do to involve? What about these insurance companies? What about individuals, community members being on that interview? 
What about taking away certification? Those to me are three things. Like if I'm a cop and I know if I make a misstep and I'm found guilty, my, my, my certification's gone. I'm thinking twice. Right. And then independent prosecutors for four to me are the top four that I'm walking away with as tangible steps of action. And I, re- right. and I really thank you for bringing those to my attention and bringing those to the attention of the listeners, um, professor that, I mean, you were, you were great with it, man. I so appreciate your time. You got it. I hope it is informative and I hope it allows some people to have a better understanding of what's going on around them. Dude, hundred percent, man. Dude, Cliff, thank you so much, man. I, re- I really appreciate your time. Be great, brother. Take care. And right. I've now become an expert on the subject I like Thanks to Cliff for being so generous with his time and for his patience with uh, answering my questions. God, Cliff, thank you for being a fucking resource for me, man. I really appreciate it. And please, please, I, I don't fucking know how else to say it. Please make George Floyd's murder much more than a reason to protest. Make it something where history is changed. Take these steps. Go to fucking town halls. Email representatives. Phone all those offices and ask the questions that were laid out for you. Get answers and hold those elected officials accountable for putting people and policies in place to protect all lives. Shit needs to stop and it will as long as we all speak up, make your voice heard with sustained action. Power to the people. Don't fucking forget it.